Well, good morning. This morning we have the songs who are going to lead us in the reading of God's word. Lesson from the Old Testament, Genesis 1.31-2.3. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was, every, there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And, and the seventh day God finished his work and, and his work and, and that he had done. And, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So, so, he, so God, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, on, the, on it God rested from all his work. He had done in his, in his creation. Lesson from the Old Testament, Isaiah sixty six one to two. Thus says the the Lord: Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What what is the house you will build for me? For me, what what and what is the place of my rest? All all these things. My hand ha- has made all. So all uh, of these these things have came to be, declares the Lord. The, but this is that this is, but this is the one that uh, to whom I will look. He has he 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 who ha- is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles in my word. Lesson from the Act, Acts of the Apostles, Acts 7, 2, and 4, 44 to 53. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Our fathers had the tent of witnesses in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it to, in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You, stiffen, you stick-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You will receive the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're going to begin this morning speaking more directly to the younger ones among us, as we typically do on a Sunday. Does anybody have school next week? Like, anybody have school? One person? One person, maybe some uh, finals to take. For those of you who don't have school, are you excited about not having school? Did anybody wake up this morning and say, I really hope 
Mr. Daniel gives us a pop quiz to begin the sermon. Nobody? Too bad? This is what you have. We have a pop quiz this morning. But since it is Thanksgiving break, it's going to be multiple choice. So you just A, B, C, or D, okay? So first question. Over how long of a time period was the Bible written? So from beginning to end, how long did it take to write the Bible? A, 100 years. B, 500 years. C, 1,000 years. Or D, 1,500 years. I have a C in the back. D. Anybody else? Yes. D. That is correct. D. 1,500 years. From beginning to end, the Bible is written over the course of 1,500 years. There are many different human authors in the Bible. Approximately how many human authors are responsible for the Bible? A. 1. B. 10. C, 40, or D, 100? C. C. You know what? That, he was so confident that is exactly right. C, 40. 40 human authors, approximately. We don't know the authors of every single book in the New Testament and Old Testament. We're not sure if it's one individual, many people, but about 40 people responsible for the entire Bible. And of those 40 human authors, and over those 1,500 years, in how many languages was the Bible written? One, two, three, or four? How many different languages are in the Bible? One, two, three, or four? I see some twos, some threes. It's actually three. And I'm going to give you four options. Which one of these languages is not found in the Bible? A, Latin. B, Greek. C, Hebrew. Or D, Aramaic. Everybody, A. Say just A. A. There's no Latin in the Bible. There's very influential and important translations of the Bible into Latin, but the original manuscripts of the Bible written in Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. All right, so the Bible is a book written over a period of 1,500 years in multiple languages. Like I said, mostly Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, dozens of human authors. Yet, kids, this is very important. We, as Christians, believe that this book has only one divine author. Over the course of 1,500 years, dozens of authors, there's only one true divine author with one purpose and one plan from beginning to end. And that plan is this. God desires to create a people in a place to enjoy his presence. I'm going to be repeating that all throughout the sermon today. God creates a people to in, in a place to enjoy his presence. And when you see the wisdom and power of God in his word, as he goes about accomplishing this one purpose, despite all of human failures and frailties, then you cannot help but to wonder and marvel at the glory of God. So that's my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to help you see that the Bible is one unified story from beginning to end, all the way from Genesis 1-1, God began, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all the way to the very end, Revelation 21 to 22, when it says, when it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to see that all throughout, God has one purpose and one plan, that's to create a people in a place to enjoy his presence. So please pray with me this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this wonderful day of Sabbath rest that you've given as a gift to us. We thank you for drawing each of us to yourself and bringing us into this place. We pray and long that indeed our church would be a place in which people can come and experience your glorious and wonderful presence, a presence of peace and rest, of joy and gladness. We pray that we as a people might be marked by your character of love and generosity, especially during this Thanksgiving week. We pray that you bring to mind the many reasons that we have to be thankful Most of all, we thank you for the blessing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and give us eyes to see him more clearly this morning in order that we might trust in him, we might grow in our faith, and that we might long, as Jessica prayed earlier this morning, that we might one day see him face to face. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to continue our sermon series in Genesis 1. So we're going to start in Genesis 1, but we're not going to stay there. We're going to go all the way throughout the Bible. And in particular, we're going to look at one theme found all throughout Scripture beginning in Genesis 1, and that is the theme of the temple. We're going to trace the theme of the temple throughout Scripture by looking at three different temples. So number one, the first temple. Number two, the temporary temple. And number three, the final temple. Right, so the first temple, then a temporary temple in the middle, and then eventually, and at the very end, the final temple. So the first temple. The first temple is from Genesis 1. The very first temple in the Bible is the cosmos itself. The heavens and the earth that are described in Genesis 1.1, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there are many biblical authors and early interpreters of the Bible who understand the entire created universe, heavens and earth, the cosmos itself, as a kind of temple. Now, there are a lot of reasons to believe this, but I'm going to give you three, of which there are many more. So three reasons why the cosmos, that is the heavens and the earth, should be thought of as a kind of temple. Y'all ready? Number one, the structure of the later temple, that's the temple in Jerusalem, it reflects the structure of the cosmos. What do I mean by that? Well, Israel's temple, if you're familiar with it, it was composed of three main parts, each of which symbolized a major part of the heavens and the earth. So first of all, on the very outside, you have an outer court. This is where all Jewish males are allowed to be in. The outer court represents the habitable world where humanity dwells. And then as you go further into the temple, there's a holy place. That holy place symbolizes the visible heavens. What we talked about when you go outside and you see the sky, the sun, the moon, and stars, that is represented by the holy place. And in the temple, there's an even further inner space called the Holy of Holies. That represents the invisible dimension of the cosmos, the invisible heavens where God and his heavenly host dwell. So the later temple is pictured as this kind of cosmos. That gives us reason to believe that the cosmos itself is a kind of prototype or a uh, template of which the later temple is based on. So that's one reason. Second reason, in the Bible, the creation of the cosmos, the building of the tabernacle, and the building of the temple, they're all described in very similar, if not identical, language. I encourage you later on, whether it's later today, sometime this week, read Exodus 39 to 40 about the building of the tabernacle uh, by Moses when they're about to enter the promised land. 
it sounds almost exactly the same as Genesis 1, when God built the entire universe. Similarly, the building of the temple appears to have been built or modeled on the seven-day creation of the world. Okay, so God created the heavens and the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. This is a model of a seven-day creation of everything that exists. Well, when King Solomon builds the earthly temple, it takes seven years to build that temple. Solomon dedicates it on the seventh month during the Feast of Booths, which is a seven-day festival of celebration. And his dedication speech that he gives basically when the temple is being opened, is a series of seven prayers. All throughout the story of the building of the temple is an indication that this temple, earthly temple, is modeled after the heavenly cosmos. And third, lastly, Old Testament writers themselves, they describe the cosmos as a kind of temple. For example, the Old Testament passage that's printed in your liturgy, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 2, if you'll read with me again. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now, in describing heaven as his throne and earth as his footstool, what the Lord is basically saying is the entire earth is like the Holy of Holies. It's like the Ark of the Covenant that's found in the Holy of Holies. He continues, what is the house that you would build for me? Now, you ought to know that the word house is often the same word that is used to refer to the temple. So what the Lord is saying is like, what is, what is this house, this temple that you were built for me, suggesting that there's a contrast. He's trying to compare the earthly temple with the true temple, which is the cosmos. And lastly, he says, what is the place of my rest? Indicating that God's cosmic temple is where he desires to rest, which is exactly what we find in Genesis 2, 1 through 4. Remember, we, when we talked about Genesis 2, 1 through 4, we said, why did God build everything? It's so that he could have a place to rest and have people to share in that rest. Verse 2, all these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. The implication is that the only dwelling place worthy of the Lord Almighty is the one that he makes himself. There's no man-made structure that is sufficient to be the temple of the Lord. Now, I know that's a lot. I kind of rushed through it. It's like, what's the point? What is the significance? Why do we need to know this? Why does it matter that the cosmos are just one giant temple that God creates for himself? And it's to show that God's original intention and design in creation is in the words of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, which says this, God's original design is that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. God creates everything so that the knowledge of him and his glory would fill his entire creation as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God made the entire world so that he could be with his people and his people could flourish and live and increase and create and rule in his presence. God's original purpose in creation is that his presence would be everywhere and available at all times for all of his people. That's why God made everything, because he wanted to share himself with us. God's presence would not be hidden or mysterious. But in the words of Habakkuk, it would be like being dropped in the middle of the ocean. Or have have you, anyone ever been in the ocean? Not like right by the shore, but you try to go farther and farther out. Maybe there's like a sandbank. You can find yourself, you can walk farther and farther out. And then at one point, you look up and everything surrounding you is water. There's no end in sight. That is the promise of the presence of God that is held out to humanity in the very beginning. That God would completely surround you. 
that you would always feel and know and experience his presence in a real way. God's peace and his presence would be the defining reality of our lives. That is what it means for the entire cosmos to be a temple of God. But as the story continues, one day we will make it out of Genesis 1, I promise you. During Advent, we'll be looking at Genesis 2 and 3. And so as the story continues into Genesis 2 and 3, we find out that because of human sin and rebellion against God, decay, defilement, death enter into our world. And this glorious vision of the presence of God and his promise is unfulfilled. Which brings us to the second temple that we're going to talk about this morning, which is the temporary temple. So first we have the entire cosmos as a temple, God's desire to live with us, with his unfiltered, unmediated presence among us. Sin ruins that picture, which leads to our second temple, the temporary temple. What I'm calling the temporary temple is actually the first temple that most people probably think of when they hear the word temple. It's the temple that you find in Jerusalem. Now, the Jerusalem temple built by King Solomon was the center of ancient Jewish religious life and practice for over a thousand years. Yet, if you read it in the context of the biblical story from the beginning to the end, we see that the temple in Jerusalem is only a stopgap measure, meaning it was never intended to be a permanent solution to the problem of human sin and rebellion. The Jerusalem temple plays two functions in the Bible. First, it does represent the real possibility of the presence of God among his people. God does truly promise to dwell in the temple among his people. On the other hand, at the same time, it represents how far God is from his people. So God says, I will dwell with you, but at the same time, this temple would be a reminder actually of how far and how partial and limited my dwelling with you actually is. So think about it. The structure that I mentioned earlier about how the further you go into the temple, the more inaccessible it actually is, that's giving this picture of the closer you get to God, the harder and harder it is for you to do that the more restrictive it becomes, less and less people are allowed to go into the inner sections. And in the very innermost section, the Holy of Holies, we're told that only one person is allowed to enter, the high priest. And he himself is actually only allowed to enter one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. And even on the Day of Atonement, he must go through an elaborate and extensive set of rituals in order to be able to access that space. You see the entire temple system, the structure of the temple itself, all of the sacrifices, the ritual washings and the purifications, what you can and cannot eat, what you can and cannot touch, all of these point to the truth that God and his holiness cannot be approached by sinful humanity. There's a distance between people and God because of human sin and rebellion. God does indeed dwell among his people, but only in a restricted and limited manner, which is a far cry from his original promise in creation. God dwells partially among men on earth, but only in one small temple, in one insignificant city, among one people in the backwaters of a very unimportant area of the world, far from the centers of power at that time. Even King Solomon, the human who was most directly responsible for the building of this temple, even King Solomon, at his dedication of the temple, recognizes its limitations. It says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 18-21. through 21. 
he asks, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. How much less this house, this temple that I've built. Yet, God, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, this temple, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant, of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So what's Solomon saying? Solomon is acknowledging that there is something deficient about this structure that he just created for God. This is the most expensive, most elaborate building in the entire nation. And Solomon says, it's nothing. There's no way that this man-made human structure can contain the Most High God. But what does he ask? King Solomon pleads that God will hear from heaven the prayers that are offered in the temple. So if God's original desire in creation is that his presence would be everywhere and always available to all people, the temple in Jerusalem makes the exact opposite point. Do you see that? The Jerusalem temple and everything represents continually remind God's people of God's holiness and the standard of purity required, uh, required to approach him. It's not a bad thing. Right. It is a gift from God for his people. It's a concession, but it's a limited dwelling with the purpose of teaching ancient Israel and us about the level of holiness required to approach God. The Jerusalem temple was always meant to be temporary, which brings us to our final temple. Right. So the first temple is the cosmos, this promise of God's presence. The second temple was a limited concession, Yes, I will dwell with you, but in a very limited way, only accessible by specific people at specific times in a very specific way. But it's temporary because it's all leading toward the final temple, which comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 4, verse 22. John writes this. He says, I saw a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Right, so God in the beginning made the heavens and the earth, And then he gives John a vision of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time. And he says this, I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is the promise. Behold, the dwelling place of God with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So what do you expect? You, see, you expect if you see New Jerusalem coming down that the defining structure of Jerusalem would be there, right? The temple right in the center. But what does it say in verse 22? And I saw no temple in the city. The new heavens and the new earth, the city of Jerusalem, New Jerusalem coming down, he said, I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. You see, the final temple is no temple at all. Because when John sees the vision of a new heaven and new earth, there's no temple because the temple of the new heaven and new earth is the Lord himself, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There's no longer a need for the temple because what the temple always pointed to and represented is finally and completely here. It's arrived. 
the full and unmediated presence of God among his people. And there's no temple because there's no need to be reminded of human sin in the new heavens and the earth. Jesus has fully and finally dealt with the problem of human sin. So at the very end of Scripture, we are given the fulfillment of God's original promise, His presence available everywhere and at all times to all of His people. And so this is what we as Christians have to look forward to. Yet, the Bible teaches us that it is also a present reality that God allows us to experience a foretaste of, meaning a partial taste, a little bit, Not fully, not completely, but we can taste a little bit of that here on earth, in our lives, and in our church. Yet I would guess, I would venture to say that many of us, even many of us Christians, we often still live under the old temporary temple, rather than in the anticipation of the final temple, which is no temple at all. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that many of us, we know that God is present among us. We say that, we believe that, we repeat that. But still, he can often seem distant and veiled, as if he's still in the Holy of Holies. Only accessible to the select chosen few while the rest of us wait to hear what they have to say and what they have to tell us about God. Or we can question and doubt whether God really is present in the busyness of our lives or in the difficulties of our trials. Who of us has not at one time in our lives asked the question, where are you, God, in the midst of this? We oscillate between feeling unworthy to enter into his presence, still believing that there's gradations of holiness that we must advance more and more into before we can finally see God in the Holy of Holies. Or maybe we just consider him irrelevant on the periphery of our daily lives that's what I mean when I'm saying we don't experience the full presence of God that is available to us everywhere in all times. But we treat him as if he's still in his temple somewhere far away in the Holy of Holies waiting to be accessed by a special person. So if any of this describes you at all, the question that we all should be asking is how do we get then from the temporary temple to the final temple? It's very clear that there's only one way. And that way is through the true temple, who's Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, The word became flesh, and he dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't know if you've know, you ever heard this. Have you heard the phrase like a come to Jesus moment? Maybe we can all think of times in our life where we had a come to Jesus moment. Maybe we hit rock bottom. We had some difficulty in our life. And we said, I have no resources in myself. I must go to Jesus. And that's what it feels like often in our life. But the Bible actually gives a very different picture. The Bible says that we do not come to Jesus, but first and foremost, Jesus comes to us. He is the one who came down from heaven. He is the one who took on flesh. He is the one who dwelled among us full of grace and truth, showing us what God the Father is really like. And don't miss the significance of that word dwelled in John chapter 1 verse 14. You might have heard that, this before. But the word dwelled is the same word that is used or related to the word that is used for tabernacle in the Old Testament. A prototype, a forerunner of the temple. So what he, John is saying is by his description of Jesus as the word as tabernacling among us or being the temple among us, 
John indicates in the same way God dwelled among Israel in the temple in the Old Testament, Jesus dwells among his people in the temple of his body during his incarnation. In the same way that God dwelled in the temple in the Old Testament, Jesus dwells among us, among his people, in his physical body. I think that's the most amazing thing about the incarnation, that Jesus is a temple. But we must ask, what kind of temple is Jesus? Is he like the temporary temple? Is Jesus the kind of temple that you can only approach if you're richly clean and pure? Or is he the kind of temple that's only accessible once a year and only available to certain kinds of people? No, Jesus is like no other temple on earth, whether it's the Jerusalem temple or the temples of any other religion. All the other religions say the temple is our sacred space. It's where heaven and earth meet. In order for you to deserve to be in that temple, you have to reach a certain standard. Holiness, moral purity. You have to offer certain kind of sacrifices. You have to be ritually pure and clean in order to go into that temple. But not so with Jesus Jesus is the kind of temple to set, who says to all those who have ears to hear, those who are well have no need of a physician, only those who are sick. Jesus frequently opposes the temple leaders, not because Jesus is against the temple per se, but because he's asking them, why are you so focused on the temple when the true temple is standing in front of you? Why be satisfied with limited access to God when complete and direct access to the Father is what is being offered to you through me? What do we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16? It speaks of Jesus as the high priest in, our, um, in God's temple. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When does the author of Hebrews say to go to Jesus? Not when you're richly pure and clean, when you've picked yourself up by your bootstraps, when you've improved yourself, when you've got to a certain level where you think that God can accept you. So, no, he says, come to Jesus that you may receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. That's when Christ wants you to come to him. And that's why the ancient temple of Jerusalem, built by human hands, could never truly fulfill God's original creation promise of his presence. But the amazing promise and reality of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, the temple of God, not made by human hands, we have God's presence fully and completely available to us. We no longer have to pray like Solomon in the temple in the hope that God will be merciful and listen to our prayers. Solomon pleads with God seven times. He says, God, please be merciful. Please turn your ear to the prayers that we offer in this house. But we don't have to pray with Sol- like Solomon did. We know that God will listen. And how do we know that? Because the true temple of God's presence, Jesus Christ, has offered himself as our one true sacrifice, and God has promised to listen to Jesus.
Jesus is not the temporary temple that's made by human hands, but he's the very love of God made visible in the walking temple who comes to you and not only reminds you of your unholiness, but he actually imparts his holiness, his righteousness, his obedience to you. And this is a complete inversion of the logic of the sacrificial system in ancient Israel. In the ancient Israelite sacrificial system, any and all exposure to death defiles you, and it makes you richly unclean. Anytime you're exposed to death in any way, you have to go through a series of rituals that would once again make you richly clean and pure in order that you can once again enter into the temple. Jesus, however, reverses this logic. In Jesus' temple, there's actually only one way to become clean. And it's not by avoiding death, but by entering into it. You see, there's only one path to life, and it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus' death as your one and only hope in life and salvation, then you are united to Christ by faith, which means that you're also united to Christ in his resurrection life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if this is true of you, then the Bible says that you are the very dwelling place of God. That this temporary temple that was in Jerusalem, that's gone, and we're looking forward to a final temple that is, there is no temp, that is no temple. But in the meantime, there actually still is a temple on earth. It's you, it's me, and it's us. The New Testament describes the church as the very vessel of the Spirit of God, the local community of believers at the new temple in Christ, the place where God promises his very presence so that people can be his representatives in a community of love, service, and worship. So the command to each one of us this morning is anticipation of the fullness of God's fulfillment of his promise that his presence would be made available to everywhere, everywhere, to all people, at all times, that we can experience a taste of that here on earth, in this church, in the community of believers. So trust in Christ and look to him so that you may be someone who can come to this place and enjoy his presence among his people now and forever. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, the grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you as the Most High God Almighty, that your ways are above our ways and our thoughts are above our thoughts. Yet how you have revealed yourself in Scripture And the desires that you have seem so simple. You simply want to be among us. You want to dwell with us. You want your presence to be the defining reality and feature of our lives. You want us to live lives of peace and joy. You want to heal the brokenness of the relationships in our lives. You want to heal the frustration that we experience on a daily basis of work and toil You want our families to be places of rest and refuge. And we desire all those things as well, Lord. I pray that you administer Christ to our hearts this day and every day in order that we can experience the foretaste of what you have for us in Christ. 
I pray that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, would carry each other's burdens, that we would love one another, that we would be slow to anger, quick to forgive, eager to encourage one another in our faiths. I thank you for the gift of this body, and I pray that as one, we would look to Christ as our one and only hope in life and salvation, that in him we might know the presence of God. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.